from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Ew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. This was the accent that led to many of these other accents. He could not just make up Aaron the Moor and Othello. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay Sit. Today we're going to be talking about William Shakespeare. Oh, God. I know. A lot of you look forward to this about as much as you look forward to root canal work. When I was assigned to read Shakespeare as a high school student, it didn't make much sense to me either. Maybe that's because nobody in Omaha spoke an iambic pentameter, or maybe it's because... I didn't have a teacher quite as charismatic as Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. Now, many of you have seen Shakespeare done very much like this. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. <laughs> but if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando... No, but Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen. <laughs> Let me rest. And that's right. It wasn't until I left home and saw Shakespeare performed that I finally really got it. Is this attacker, which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? That is the wonderful Ian McKellum as Macbeth. Come, let me catch thee. Have they not? I need to see this stuff. Are there not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to cider? Or are there but a dagger of the mind? Performances like McKellen's give breath and blood and sweat to Shakespeare. Great actors performing are Shakespeare's characters incarnate, alive. So that after that first five or ten minutes of linguistic confusion, you slip into the world and understand. But there's more than one way to clutch a dagger. Oh, is this a dagger which I see before me? Or a pizza? Mmm, pizza. That is an actor named Rick Miller. For more than 15 years, he performed a one-man show called Homer, and it's a pretty faithful version of Macbeth. Hark, who lies in the second chamber? Malcolm! Oh. It's the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, so we're devoting this whole hour to what we make of Shakespeare today and what Shakespeare might make of us. It's not just on stage where swords are drawn and poison prepared. Some of the biggest drama these days is offstage. Last year, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival announced it was commissioning what it called modern English translations of Shakespeare's plays. And I got to say, when I read that, I was kind of appalled. You know, dumbing down Shakespeare. We often don't realize how much we miss because it's not as if he's using words from Polish. They're the words that we know, but so often we don't know what he meant. That's John McWhorter, the Columbia University linguistics professor. He actually convinced me that some updating of the plays is a good thing. In King Lear, Edmund at one point describes himself as generous. And you think, okay, he's talking about giving away things readily, which doesn't make sense given what he's talking about at that point. Generous 
meant noble then. Now, that's not a matter of poetry. It's utterly opaque. We can't know. That needs to be changed to noble. You say that Shakespeare was an entertainer, loved crowds and people of all classes and education to enjoy his plays. So I guess you think he'd be all down with this. He would be very <laughs> down with this. I mean, this is really, I consider this to be almost a smackdown argument on this. Imagine Shakespeare with us and don't imagine him in black and white or as a static portrait moving along. Imagine him as an actual living, breathing, sweating person. Shakespeare would be depressed to watch us sitting and pretending to understand one-tenth of King Lear and going to his plays often as a kind of duty. I'm not saying that's all of us, but there's certainly something there. He wouldn't approve of that. Since the early talkies, movie directors have done their part to make Shakespeare more understandable, hiring matinee idols and starlets to perform adaptations of the plays. But even recently, not everybody has been encouraged to audition. I actually was told by a casting director when I first got out of Juilliard, uh, at a major studio. That's the actor Wendell Pierce. And said, you know, I couldn't cast you in like a Shakespeare movie because there weren't any black people back then. Really? Uh, did you say <laughs> Othello? Uh, right, right. I said, you know, as bad as Shakespeare was, he could not just make up yeah. Aaron the Moor and Othello. You, you say crazy things like that and then perpetuate other mythology because, you know, you would think everyone in ancient Rome and antiquity of Greece were all British men yes. with RP from the exactly. West End. Exactly. Oh, Autolycus, I am going down to the Senate today and I hope, will Socrates be there? You know what's worse than the misconception that black faces don't belong in Shakespeare? Shakespeare in blackface. Well into the 20th century, minstrel shows in vaudeville with white performers in blackface were popular and even respectable. And those old minstrel show travesties were the ways that lots of people first encountered Shakespeare's plays. A few years ago, the producer Richard Paul dug up one thread of the strange story of Shakespeare's plays interweaving with American race relations. First thing you need to understand for context is this. In the mid-1800s, if you were a seamstress or a longshoreman, Shakespeare's plots and characters were not strangers to you. Othello and Desdemona were as well-known then as Homer and Marge or Tony and Carmela are today. But when you went to the theater, more likely than not, the Othello you saw wasn't this. Yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. It was more likely this. Now, do you know this piece? You can easily learn it. The plot is, Othello, a jealous moor, runs off with Dawes the money. Seizes her, strangles her. I guess I'll play Othello. It was Shakespeare done minstrel style. Francesca Royster teaches English at DePaul University. Shakespeare's American life is very closely intertwined with the performance of the minstrel shows. Minstrel shows generally featured whites in blackface playing stereotypes of African Americans along with other ethnic humor. If for my wife, your daughter you're looking, you'll find her in the kitchen, busy cooking. What's that you say? My daughter is your wife? You damn black rascal, I will have your life going, Rodriguez. Professor Royster says these Shakespeare parodies allowed Americans to explore some of the toughest issues around race. 
struggles around fears of miscegenation, um, issues of slavery, for example, um, what to do with immigrants um, like Germans and Irish. How are those immigrants integrated into the binary opposition of black and white? This material, Royster says, was drained of its danger when it was put on stage and mocked. I love my Desdemona, away, away, and hand in hand we'll take a stand to spend Brabancho's money, away, But while there may be things away, for an historian to appreciate about minstrel shows, the fact is this was white people with cork on their faces playing the fool. That's probably one of the many reasons why the African-American sense of ownership when it comes to Shakespeare has been supremely conflicted. Kellyanne Sennett Jennings is a professor of theater at American University in Washington, D.C. She also wrote a play called Playing Juliet, Casting Othello. To be a black American woman saying Juliet's lines, thou knows the mask of night is on my... and crows and references to the blackness being evil and ugly and bad. Any person of color is going to have to wrestle with what that means. And yet... Professor Jennings says it's the beauty and mystery of Shakespeare's work that even while it can oppress, it has also served as a foot in the door. Shakespeare has often been used by African Americans as a way of proving worthiness. The earliest example of this came in 1827. Slavery had just ended in New York, and an all-black production of Richard III opened at an ice cream parlor in Lower Manhattan. Shane White is an Australian historian. Here's a bunch of of blacks, many of whom were ex-slaves, performing Shakespeare on stage. Blacks who are struggling to make ends meet. And what do they do when they become free? Well, many of them will try and learn how to read and write. And some of them, in this case, will go out and perform Shakespeare. They were called the African Grove Theatre Company. They were so successful, a rival white theater owner had the actors arrested. I guess you could say for performing while black. One of the Grove's performers, Ira Aldridge, ended up going to England, where he lured people into the theater, thinking they were going to see a minstrel show, and then blew them away with his performance of Othello. That's the real Othello, Shakespeare's Othello. Aldridge becomes the most famous black actor of the 19th century. He'd also play Shylock and Richard III in whiteface, It would be 150 years before a black man played a white Shakespeare role in the U.S. That happened when Joseph Papp created Shakespeare in the Park in New York in the 1970s. Papp instituted what was called colorblind casting, allowing actors like James Earl Jones to play King Lear. None does offend. None. I say none. I'll able them. Take that of me, my friend, who have the power to seal the accuser's lips. It was revolutionary to think that a black actor could say these lines and the play have nothing to do with racial tension or racial issues. It was simply the fact that this black actor was a person. What a revolutionary idea. Colorblind casting was the thing to do for 10 years, but in the 1990s, there was a backlash. I would much rather that they do art that is of their own specific ethnic or racial background. The playwright August Wilson waged a campaign excoriating colorblind casting. He suggested that blacks playing whites was really no different from a minstrel show where whites played blacks. It denies the individual standing on a stage representing another race of people, denies him his own culture. 
Wilson felt that if producers could hire black actors for any role, they would stop funding plays by black playwrights about authentically black characters. You're taking black talent and you're empowering black talent, if you will, at the expense of black theater. If whites want to possess their culture, he suggested, let them. Now that African Americans have their own cultural capital, they don't need to borrow Shakespeare. Kim Hall is a professor at Fordham University. She says she hears this argument all the time. This kind of idea that, A, it doesn't belong to African Americans, and from more, you know, I don't know what to say, political and progressive circles, um, this idea that you should be working on African American authors. Who does Shakespeare belong to in America? It seems glib and easy at first to say Shakespeare belongs to everyone, but in a way, the African-American experience with Shakespeare may be the best evidence that it's true. As Maya Angelou has famously said, speaking here on the BBC's Every Woman program, That must, it's got to be a black girl who wrote that. When, in disgrace with fortune, in men's eyes, I all alone, bemoan my outcast state and trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. See? That's a black girl. (laughs) Since that story first aired, both Maya Angelou and August Wilson have died. Richard Paul's original reporting was done for the Folger Shakespeare Library's radio series, Shakespeare in American Life. Still ahead this hour... To bear or not to bear, that is the question. Hamlet, as you've probably never heard him. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a say of troubles and by opposing, end them. The way Shakespeare originally sounded. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. Studio 360. Your idea of what a Shakespearean actor sounds like probably comes from the likes of Laurence Olivier. To be or not to be, that is the question. Rather than, say, Ethan Hawke. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Olivier just sounds more Shakespearean. But maybe, in fact... Not. Maybe for the last 400 years, the pronunciation of English by English people has changed so much, it turns out we're actually missing the full flavor and the full meanings of Shakespeare's language. Anyhow, that's the theory of David and Ben Crystal, a father and son team of linguists, and Ben is also a successful Shakespearean actor. The Crystals have recreated what they say is original pronunciation how Shakespeare's plays would have sounded around 1600. David and Ben Crystal, welcome to Studio 360. Great to be here. Nice to see you, Kurt. So when did you and which of you decided to start figuring out the original pronunciation of Shakespeare? Well, this all started, this is David, and this all started in 2004 
when the telephone rings at home and it's Shakespeare's Globe in London. And the director there, Tim Carroll, wanted to put on a production of Romeo and Juliet in original pronunciation. The Globe, you see, ha- is known for its attempt to reconstruct original practices, you know, original music, original costume and so on. Right. So that's how it started. Uh, we did a, a Romeo and Juliet reconstruction in OP, as we call it, original pronunciation. It was very successful. And since then, the ball has started rolling. I remember when Dad first started speaking to me about this almost 10 years ago, and he said, you know, I think we're, we're probably about 80% right. And then a few years later, he said, you know what, I think we're actually about 90% right. <laughs> yes. And, and he's, he's continuing his, his academic work on OP and refining that even still. And then on, on the other side of the fork, as it were, I've gone off and have been exploring it from a practical, from a practitioner's point of view. And the effects that it has on a company, on the way that they move, on the, the speed of speech, and indeed the, uh, the quality of Shakespeare performance that comes out of people when they use this accent. Just so we can uh, compare apples to apples, Ben, uh, if you can remember it or know it, can you do that, the the Hamlet soliloquy we to. started with? Hamlet's to be or not to be in, in original pronunciation. At least the first few lines. To bear or not to bear, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sad troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to slap no more, and by a slab to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. That's fantastic. In addition to being less portentous than any version of that that I've ever heard, it sounds like most English people in 1600s uh, spoke more like people in the north of England and Ireland do now. So essentially, the accent in the south of England was the one that modernized and became standard? Well, that's right. The history of English accents is very interesting here. When um, when we did this at the Globe, I spent the the, uh, the uh, interval going around the audience and saying, what do you think? How do you recognize it? And everybody said, everybody said, we speak like that where I come from. <laughs> you know, and it didn't matter where they came from, whether they came from the north of England or Ireland or Scotland or even parts of America. They all said, we recognize that accent. And the reason, you see, is that this was the accent that led to many of these other accents. You know, the uh, Irish and, and Scots and, and Northern and so on all developed out of it. And, in, of course, American accents, too, because this is the accent that went across on the Mayflower, you see. And later right. Australian. And later Australia. Now, the received pronunciation that you heard earlier on with Laurence Olivier, this is a very late accent. It doesn't arrive in Britain, in England, until about the year 1800. It was a class accent, you Mm -hmm. see, uh, when the new class system was developing, upper class, middle class, lower class, and the upper class people wanted to make sure they didn't sound like lower class people. (laughs) Then that accent evolved and became the RP that we know today. But in Shakespeare's time, there was nothing remotely like received pronunciation. In terms of going to see a Shakespeare play, it it completely turns everything on its head. So the things that you were picking up there when you heard me do Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be, and you're saying it sounds a bit more colloquial informal and that kind of thing you think about the kind of theatrical dynamic that the globe has where the lights are on the audience and on the 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 actors Mm -hmm. as well and you can see each other and there's a two-way dynamic so they talk to the audience it's it's a sort of time to ask to ask your friend uh, for help you know what do you think i should do do you think i should kill claudius uh do you think i should uh, believe the ghost and and you know the audience would reply as well so suddenly you've got a two-way dynamic it's much you're much more involved with the action rather than 
when this uh, more sort of uh, clipped and, and polite accent came in, the lights were off on the audience. They were observers on someone self-reflecting, and thereby you get this grander sort of uh, you know yeah. pedestal style of Shakespeare. That's interesting. So this language helped make the fourth wall non-existent until it was invented sometime in the 19th century. One of the things you have to appreciate when you are talking about accent is that accent doesn't exist independently of the rest of the body or even the rest of the stage. One of the most noticeable things that I saw when I was sitting in the rehearsal room um, at Shakespeare's Globe, uh, and next to me was sitting the mistress of movement at the Globe there, Glyn MacDonald. What a title. Yes. I, I was master of original pronunciation, and she was uh-huh. mistress of movement. Wasn't it lovely? <laughs> anyway, we're watching the actors on the stage, and this was the first time she'd seen them since they'd learnt the accent. Now, they were already doing Romeo, you see, in the modern accent at the same time as they were doing it in OP. And she looked at me and said, they're moving differently. They're holding themselves differently. Now, the speed difference that we're talking about is quite significant. If I give you an example, when Romeo looks up at the gallery and says, "It in modern English, it is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. That's about six seconds. <laughs> now, if you do it in OP, it comes out like this. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. That's about four seconds. Now, when you you compare the OP Romeo with the modern Romeo, the OP version was 10 minutes shorter because of this speed issue. And that's a lifetime on stage, isn't it, Ben? I mean, 10 minutes shorter is is amazing. I mean, it's it's everything that you want from, you know, the Romeo and Juliet chorus when he says it's now the two hours traffic of our stage rather than the, you know, the three and three quarter hours traffic. It's so wonderfully counterintuitive, too, since we think, oh, now is the time of speed. And, of course, (laughs) we're slower. Well, and, you know, in a a much more sort of, I suppose, in a very straightforward effect, you know, cry havoc and unleash the dogs of war. Mm -hmm. Uh, The line from Julius Caesar, you know, it's a wonderful line that. And, you know, in received pronunciation, it's cry havoc and unleash the dogs of war. And you sort of think, well, you know, one of the things that you want to do when you're working with actors on Shakespeare is encourage them to bring the colour out in words. Now, how to bring the colour out in the word war? How do you make it sound like war, you know? Well, it's already there for you in original pronunciation. Cry havoc and unleash the dogs of war, you know? What do you want to... Hello, hello, I'm a dog of war. (laughs) Chanted to meet you. Or, I'm a dog of war. Yeah, no, it makes it makes the, all of the modern received pronunciation sound like a Monty Python sketch a bit. A little bit. Yeah. And, you know, some of the kids in the audience at Shakespeare's Globe were, reacted in exactly that way. I met a group of inner city kids who spoke in a strong London accent uh, as I was walking around. And I went up to them and I said, you know, how are you finding the, the play, guys? And they said, oh, oh, it's great. They said, isn't it? It's great. And I said, why, why? What's so great about it? And they said, well, normally, they said, uh, when we go to theatre, um, it sounds all posh. Whereas these people, they're speaking like us. Now, of course, the OP wasn't exactly like the way they were speaking, but it reached out to them in a way that made them feel it was a warmer connection than before. The other astounding part of this is that it has apparently allowed you and us to to unearth kind of archaeologically puns and jokes that were invisible to us heretofore. Talk about that. Yeah, this is this is the thing. One of the questions I bet is in every listener's mind at the moment, unless they're specialists in linguistics, is how do you know? How do you know 
How do you reconstruct? And the answer is very simple. You look very carefully at all the rhymes that don't work in modern English that do work in Shakespeare's day, and we can illustrate that in a second. And the next thing you do is you look at all the puns that don't work in modern English that did work in Shakespeare's day. Now, the rhymes are the first thing before we get on to puns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the sonnets in particular, Ben, they're supposed are, to rhyme, are, right? They absolutely. <laughs> now, ninety-six of the sonnets don't rhyme. Per- Perfectly. And you have to ask the question, well, why is that? Was Shakespeare not a very good poet then? Yeah. And that's most uh, of uh, them, <laughs> listeners, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Out of the 154, that's a tremendous number. And the other thing is, you can't get out of it by saying, ah, well, these were I rhymes, you know, rhymes that looked right, even though they didn't sound right, because that wasn't the fashion of speaking in those days. No, the sonnets. And Ben, would you do one for us? Because that will illustrate the point perfectly. Sure. Well, the end, the end uh, rhyme of um, 100. 16 if this be error and upon me proved i never writ nor no man ever loved Which there we are Pro- proved and proved loved and love you know yeah. they should rhyme now the question academically is is it proved and loved or proved and loved now, there, I, this is where I come in. I go looking at the sources and find that, for example, Ben Johnson, the dramatist, but he also wrote an English grammar, says when he, at the beginning of his grammar, he goes through all the letters of the alphabet, and when he gets to letter O, he says, we pronounce this word short, and he gives examples like uh, glove, prov, love. So he tells us that it's short. So the real version is, Ben? If this be Aaron upon me proved, I never writ, no, no man e'er loved. That's fantastic. Um, ben, you have been uh, leading workshops in the United States and all over the United Kingdom. H- how do American actors do in, in picking up OP versus British? Uh, is, it, is there any difference? Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, really, because, you know, Dad sort of, obviously, from an academic point of view, hates that final 10% that he can't fill. Yeah. And I've been trying to find a way to turn it to my advantage. So, um, you know, there's an element in that, you know, my original pronunciation is original pronunciation to 90%. And then that last 10% is, well, I was, I was born um, near London, so this is my sort of natural... Uh, spoken accent and then I grew up in North Wales and then I went to university in Lancaster and then I came back down to London so I got a bit of Cockney as well and I spent a lot of time travelling around the world so I got a bit of a transatlantic thing so my original pronunciation is 90% OP and then 10% filled with me you know the very essence of my mm. sort of accent background and so it makes speaking Shakespeare um, you know a company who's all speaking in OP they all sound pretty much the same but at the same time they have an ownership over it that um, you know is quite unlike any any other now when i was working with uh, uh the reno whites on on hamlet there are parts of the accent that are more natural to them you know like the strong r or whatever that's, yeah. that's very in, in, in inherent to, to modern american um the, the thing is, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, you think that all plays should be done in the globe and all, you know, we should be in doublet and hose and all speak in original pronunciation. And, uh, you know, I was working with an actor who was struggling with um, Oberon and he had to do the speech flower of this purple dye hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. And the rhymes don't work. And I said, well, you know, they do in OP. Floor of this purple dye hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. Uh-huh. Now, does that mean that, you know, forevermore we should do it in OP? No, it worked brilliantly in Southern American. Flower this purple dye, hippocupid's archerite, sinking apple of his eye. You know, as long as yeah. you can speak it in an accent that fits, that's all that's needed, really. Do you guys ever just 
joke around and talk to each other uh, in in OP, do the st- dialogue from Star Wars or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. All, all the time. Absolutely right. And Tea you know, time in the crystals. Yes. But this is, this is a very important thing. When you're working with the actors, as I did at uh, The Globe, and I think you did also in Reno, Ben, um, I, that's one of the things I tell them to do uh, when they leave each other at the end of the evening. I tell them, don't say good night to each other. Say good night. You know, get in, get into the habit of using your OP, uh, ordering a pint of beer in the pub or whatever it is. Do it in OP and make it become second nature to you. Very important strategy. Second nature. Second nature, <laughs> yes. <laughs> David and Ben Crystal, thank you so much. This was just a pleasure. Likewise. And ours too. Thanks, Kurt. You can find out more about original pronunciation, like how Shakespeare hid some very naughty puns in his verse, by listening to my full conversation with the Crystals, father and son, at studio360.org. We love hearing about works of art and entertainment that have changed people's lives. And today, we'll hear from one listener who had his aha moment. It's a theme, watching Shakespeare. Jeff House listens to the show on San Francisco's KQED, and his story starts when he was a teenager, just watching TV. My first exposure to Shakespeare came from my uh, very bright sister. I remember she came home one night and told us that Christopher Plummer was doing a performance of Hamlet, and we had to see this because it was just this terrific play your teacher had told her all about. And, uh, of course, I I thought, well, fine, we'll, we'll watch. It was television. How bad could it be? To be or not to be, that is the question. My sister was enthralled, and I was bored silly. Why, that is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. The language obviously made no sense and deals with a young man who is dealing with the ultimate questions of our existence, our sense of identity, and who we are, and what's important to us. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. To paraphrase Shakespeare, I thought he was much ado about nothing. I couldn't figure out what Hamlet's whole uh, concern was. Well, when I was 23... I went through a series of experiences that created sort of the emotional perfect storm. Within one year, I lost the faith that I had been a member of since uh, childhood, and as a result of that, became estranged from my family. And then to top it all off, I had been involved in probably my first very serious relationship, and that crashed. And... I can remember having a strong sense of having failed. It became increasingly difficult for me just to function. One of the many things I decided to do to get myself back out into the world was taking some shows and stuff, and we had a local theater in Los Gatos, and they ran a special season ticket price for students. And I think it was probably after I bought the ticket that I saw the very first show was Hamlet. 
And I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> I've already figured out this guy is not worth my time. But uh, I figured, you know, what the heck. And if I don't like it, obviously, uh, I can just get up and leave the theater, which is pretty much what I thought I was going to do. I sat in the very back row, and I began to watch the show. And this was a young man who suddenly had found his world turned upside down. He had to deal with the, not only the loss of his father, but with the suspicion that his uncle was involved in this. So he was estranged from his family. He went for comfort to his girlfriend, who more or less sided with her father. And Hamlet realizes that he's lost her, and she's betrayed him as well. He's completely alone. And he has no sense of his purpose. He has no sense of what's important anymore. I was stunned. So now I was watching my life on stage, and I wanted to see what happened. What I wasn't prepared for was the fifth act, and he has the gravedigger scene. Alas, Paul York. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times. And now, how abhorred in my imagination it is, my gorge rims at it. In talking to Horatio and talking to the grave digger, he's surrounded by death. And of all the obstacles and blocks in our lives, this is the ultimate one. And he finally gets to the end of his speech with Horatio. And he talks about, you know, we have no control over our lives. We defy augury. This is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If we don't want something to happen, it's going to happen. If we want it to happen, it won't happen. And then he makes the four-word phrase that became the motto for my life, which is, the readiness is all. Uh, because it was very hard with my upbringing to conceive that people with flaws could actually be admirable. And here I admired the heck out of a guy that uh, at times is just about unbearable to watch. And I think it was important for me because it suggested that you can change, that what you are born with or what you were born into is not destiny, it's not fate. So whatever your circumstances are, the challenge of your existence is to say, this is what I have, these are the tools. This is what I'm going to work with. The readiness is all. I did go back to school, and as part of going back to school, I went to get my teaching credential in English literature. And then eventually I began teaching Hamlet. And I remember being a teenage boy, not understanding all the anger, the frustration, the extreme emotion that Hamlet displays. And as I deal with my students, I always have this mixed response. Part of me wants them, obviously, to understand it. But to a certain degree, you have to have experienced something similar to what he has gone through. So there's a part of me that doesn't want them to understand it. And I always say to them, perhaps there will come a day when you will. And if you do, I can testify this is a play that can teach you a lot about how to deal with that. That's Jeff House. He listens to the show on KQED in San Francisco. 
Studio 360's Jenny Lawton produced our story with help from Thomas Seeley. And we want to hear your stories. Is there a play or TV show or song or whatever that got you through a confusing or difficult time? If so, drop us a note at studio360.org and we may put your story on the air. Still ahead this hour, we will go behind the scenes of an incredibly ambitious production. It's part theater, part dance, part art installation, part theme park, all inspired by Macbeth, but with one big twist. How do we do the full Macbeth, but you don't hear any of the language? The language gets absorbed into the space, into the intention, but uh, ultimately it's a silent film. Evoking the great writer, but without words. That's coming up in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. American icons tell us something about who we are as a people, from the Lincoln Memorial to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think the book has had a very strong influence on the public's general perception of what the hospitals were like at that time, what was wrong with people, and how they were treated in the hospitals. Studio 360's American icons help us understand our story. You can listen to them all at studio360.org slash icons. Studio 360. Today's show is all about how Shakespeare lives. 400 years after he shuffled off this mortal coil. Enjoy your stay at the McKittrick. A few years ago, I went to an old building in Chelsea one of New York's art gallery districts, to see something that I'd heard a lot about. Inside, the lobby lounge looks like it's in the 1930s. I'm actually here to see a play, or anyway, to immerse in a playish experience. It's a production by the British company Punch Drunk, but no one will tell me what is about to happen, other than that it's based on Macbeth, loosely. The show's called Sleep No More. Please down your cocktails because you can't bring them with you. Please step right over here. Punch Drunk are pioneers in immersive theater. They took 100,000 square feet of warehouse space, two and a half acres, and turned that into this meticulously detailed world, a kind of Macbeth theme park with no signage or maps or instructions. These are your masks for this evening. I'm handed a mask, white plastic, kind of sinister looking. The elevator goes up and then at level three the doors open. And I'm inside a living room. It's dimly lit, atmospheric. The walls are lined with mirrors and faded photographs of children. I walk through a doorway and then stumble into a graveyard. Real dirt crunching beneath my feet. I round the corner, and now I'm in a bedroom. And there's a man and woman dancing this passionate, almost violent duet. Nobody speaks, but 
I believe I've found Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth. I leave them and step into a dark courtyard that's draped in fog. Now we're in the grounds of the hotel, and it's sort of decaying Victorian walled garden. That is the show's creator, Felix Barrett, who seems more like Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream than anybody out of Macbeth. The disease and rot that's at the core of their relationship becomes evident out here. It's Lady Macbeth's playground, beautifully indicative of uh, Blackheart. For as long as I want, 45 minutes, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever, I will follow Lady Macbeth or the other characters around their dreamy world. It's a giant-sized theatrical version of Choose Your Own Adventure. It's intensively imagined and truly mysterious. For me, it's most important that audience members feel like they're lost. Almost that moment of panic where... Do you think, am I in the right place? Have I, have I strayed too far? Yes, I was lost most of the time, yeah. so you succeeded. <laughs> the original challenge with this was, how do we do the full Macbeth, but you don't hear any of the language. The language gets absorbed into the space, into the intention, but uh, ultimately it's a silent film. Yes. How many, how many floors do you have here? There are five, six floors. Really? And, and 100,000 square feet now? Yeah. But some of the spaces you can't, not everyone can access. The sixth floor, you can only get in if you're by yourself. Really? And you're very lucky. Fate will have a hand in that. Interesting. So It's New York. Of course there's a VIP room. Yeah. <laughs> Lead the way. So, we come through here. Here we are in the foyer, the lobby of the McKittrick Hotel. Suggested by old phone booths and old furniture. and It's, it's slightly run down. It's almost... Half it's been locked up for the winter. Do you have a year in mind that we are in? in during 1938. The show? Sort of, you know, the peak of film noir. Yeah. Um, and we're in Scotland. And, uh, and this is inspired by Macbeth and a, a take on Macbeth. And we don't have any problem, unlike a regular theater where you can't say Macbeth, we don't say the Scottish play. Well, very interesting. We actually actively embrace it because I think one of our big design concepts for the whole building, all 100 rooms, is that... 100 rooms, really? Yeah, is that superstition for us is at the core of the text. And uh, the idea that these portents and omens are in the air. And, you know, there's witch, the witchcraft and, you know, the dark arts are everywhere. So every single space has some sort of superstition within it. Either it's something that's preventative and it's almost like um, it wards off evil and protects against witches, which means that our witches can't actually enter. Or it's something that's a curse. It's almost the hex upon the space that's actually sucking the darkness in. So this is where the hotel is most hotel-like. The breakfast room round the corner here. You can see, actually, in terms of the superstition here, there's the silver is... Hundreds of, of cubby holes, some of which have uh, cutlery in, formed into crosses, for instance. And they're in piles of salt because, again, that's just a substance that protects against... Which is. And now, when you come here at night during a performance, there were people eating lunch or breakfast or whatever they're doing, and then start to interact in these strange, choreographed, silent ways. Yeah, the action is largely contemporary dance. And it's, improvised? or No, the, actually nothing in the show is improvised. Really? At five past eight every evening, we'll know exactly where everyone is in the building. Really? Yeah. So, so the all and all the embraces and and climbing up walls and all the rest. That's totally so. Every huh. single gesture, every single 
action has been rehearsed. Uh, so we're in, we've seen two yeah. of a hundred rooms. Let's so, go yeah, see some let's more. Let's go upstairs to... Uh, so this is uh, Lady Macbeth's bedroom in the orangery, sort of the most exclusive, uh, luxurious wing of the hotel. Grand bed, it's the, it's the marital suite. The key scene here probably is, is the persuasion. Uh, you know, it's her actually forcing him to do the deed. And, and by the way, an old-fashioned uh, bathtub full of what looks to be uh, bloody water. Yeah, the water at the top of the show starts clean. But after murdering Duncan, the water's very red by the end. So now we've just walked through the vegetable patch that's uh, in the grounds of the It seems McKittry. to be a graveyard. Well, it kind of, yeah, it's half Piles graveyard. Piles of dirt with crosses, I'd say graveyard. But. Yeah. And here, we're now in the guardsman's cottage uh-huh. on uh, the estate. And this is the home of the McDuffs. This begins one of these smaller domestic spaces that is so intensely decorated with, with objects, books, and flowers, and teacups, and crucifixes, and I could go on and on. People, audience members, can and do go examine individual things and pull a book off the shelf, and that's okay, right? Yeah, it, it's crucial that if you want to, you can go up and scrutinize. And actually, if we move down here, there are sort of... Every single drawer that you see, you can open and you can interrogate. Right? You would open these drawers. Aha. So there's a black and white photograph of an infant in a circle of salt. With uh, the character of Lady Macduff, her, her mild paranoia about her infants has turned into borderline lunacy. And, and here on the wall are dozens of really old, yellowed uh, newspaper magazine clippings uh, pinned to the wall along with religious artifacts, photographs. I mean, the, the density of material and choice made about why, why is this text here and what does this mean? Yeah. And does it mean anything? Yeah, or? we've got a huge team of people led by Beatrice Mins who work on the detail from letter writing to sourcing these right quotes. So these actual Bible references that are used as preventative charms. What's this one? So Christopher, that his mercy's might instruct the Christ in my heart to open heavenwards and receive thy spirit, for to know in the unity of the saints the love... And that's all we get. <laughs> that's a scrap. Should we go upstairs? Sure, whatever you say. So here we're in the in the one of the more clearly spooky places, a, a hospital ward and an asylum ward, something that uh, has a crucifix over each plain, depressing white metal bed. And this is where, when Lady Macbeth goes mad and is driven crazy by the actions, she ends up and spends the last of her days. Because there are a hundred thousand different versions of this of sleep no more that can be experienced I, I know I've had uh, conversations with every friend of mine who I've discovered has seen it saying oh did you do, did you see this or oh, what did you do there and did you see that and then, so comparing notes but I've also noticed seen that there are people online trying to amass 
their knowledge in a kind of wiki yeah. way. Does that bug you? Actually, it does. It's very strange. That's the only difference between an American audience and an English audience. Um, that I think here there's a sense that it's a puzzle that can be solved, and they're trying to work out the logic so that you can almost um, create a sort of master plan where, which we have, you know, at five past eight, Lady Macduff will be in the ballroom with the candlestick. Um, and there's a desire for people to make sense of that. Yeah. When I think it's the, the English audience, uh, strangely, it's almost go the other way and they just... They don't want to demystify anything. They don't want to demystify, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Felix. This is, this is fantastic. Thank you very much. I, I hope you run for as long as you want to run. Thanks. Pleasure. Good. Pleasure indeed. My farewell wish there to Felix that his show would have a long run. That came true, and then some. I visited the McKittrick in 2011, just after Sleep No More opened, and it's still going. You can see pictures of some of the rooms we visited at studio360.org. And parting is such sweet sorrow. This edition of Studio 360 has come to a close. You can always find us on Twitter. We're at Studio360Show, and I'm at KB Anderson with an E-N. Studio 360's a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Jenny Lawton. Andrew Adam Newman. Louie Mitchell. Krista Ripple. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Gabriella Cortez. Judy Gu. Jackie Harris. Thanks for listening. Ophelia, she's neath the window For her I feel so afraid On her 22nd birthday She already is an old maid PRI Public Radio International Most of the time you don't want to be made fun of But in the music business, getting mocked by one particular artist is kind of an honor. It's sort of a signal that an artist has reached a certain plateau in their career. You know, they've got the Grammys, they've got the Platinum albums, then they get the Weird Al parody. So it's just part of the triumvirate there. The art of parody. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.